We want to consider today the topic of God's thoughts, not your thoughts. Maybe you have never given much thought to the idea of thinking and how God commands us to think in ways about life that honor him and benefit our own souls. I can hear the objections now. No one can tell anyone how to think. Or, you're entitled to your view, but give me the courtesy of allowing me to be entitled to my view. Or, there are many ways to think about life, and no one way is right to the exclusion of others. And on and on it goes, the objections come. Now much of this is based on the American idol of individualism, wherein we have been taught such things as, don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. I hear that all the time. Or, you're smart enough to figure out for yourself what you want out of life. Or again, when people go off to college, the professors will push for independent thinking, unless it's religious, and they will say things like, make up your own mind, stand up for yourself, and so and so. It goes on. Well, let me ask the question, is there such a thing as right thinking? Is there such a thing as wrong thinking? And in the Christian community, there is the added dimension that because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we all have the wherewithal to think right thoughts and come up with God-honoring decisions. And of course, there is some truth in that. But subliminally, if not overtly, the notion begins to slip into our psyche that we own our own thinking and no one has the right to tell us how to think on any given issue. Okay, then let me ask this question. Does God have the right? Does God have the right to tell us how to think? Is there something to be learned from more mature believers on the issues of life, for example? Can we, should we, simply ignore the accumulated wisdom of the Christian culture through the ages? Why do you buy books by Christian authors? Why listen to sermons from godly ministers who spend time studying? Why do that? Why seek out counsel? from Christian friends and their experience. Why do that? My point is the seeming contradiction between what is biblical, a biblical worldview, and don't get hung up on that worldview. That simply is your philosophy of thinking, your philosophy of life. And everyone has one. And the thoughts and lives of unbelievers the inconsistency between the two. 
My point is that sometimes we are able to articulate and say what we believe without the complementary activity plugged into what we believe. And I'm talking about that contradiction between the biblical worldview and life itself. The difference between what we say we believe and the actions which flow out of that behavior. I think probably every Christian in this room has been accused of being a hypocrite at one time or another by some person of the world. They could not reconcile in their minds how you could do something which they thought was inconsistent with being religious. Usually their view of us. Now it's quite true that the world is not the best judge of what is Christian and what is not. But there is such a thing as what Paul calls the law written on the heart of the unbeliever. Romans 2 verse 15. So that the world is not totally bereft of any sense of right and wrong. It's the God consciousness that's built into them. In fact, it is because men and women do know right from wrong that their own standard will be applied to them in the day of judgment. Did you, did you know that? Jesus says so in Matthew 7, verse 2. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What's he saying? God will use your own criteria in the day of judgment to judge you. That's pretty revealing, isn't it? Sometimes the criticism of the world is unjust, but at other times the hypocrisy they see in us is real. We do not always act in accordance to our proclaimed belief system. And if we are ever challenged in the discrepancies between faith and function, we play games with ourselves or with others to justify the inconsistency. We say, oh, I, you know, I, was, I was just kidding uh, when we weren't kidding at all when we made our statement. So we add lying and deception to the original sin. Or we say, well, I made a mistake. Or you are mistaken in your observation. What we're doing is soft-pedaling the seriousness of our sin or we are suggesting that the real sinner is the person evaluating us. They have made the mistake in their assessment. It's not us that's in the wrong. It's them that are in the wrong. And that leads to another point. And that is the point of self-deception. This is more serious. We delude ourselves into thinking 
that correct theology is the equivalent of correct behavior so long as we believe accurate Bible teaching, we think we can dismiss actions as being rather irrelevant. I've run into a number of people like this, and I'm sure you have too. In other words, we define faith in terms of doctrinal content alone and not as demonstrative of complementary behavior which agrees with the biblical ethic. In short, if we believe right, we think we are right in what we do. Well, you know, I think that is a great deception of the evil one. And we play right into his hands when we think this way. There will be people in hell that have correct, right doctrine. But they haven't practiced any of it. They haven't believed it by faith. They haven't applied it whatsoever. But they got it up here. They studied it. They wrote their books. They maybe even preached their sermons. They taught their Bible classes. But their heart was far from God. You know, it is very possible to be self-deceived. Many times over, the Bible warns us against self-deception. Now, it has other warnings, too, about the deceivers that are out there. First John is a good book on that. He tells us that not don't believe every spirit that's out there because they're not all about Christ. But then the Bible also has this, these teachings concerning how we can deceive ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived, writes Paul. And then he tells us, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, and so on and so on, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why would Paul write that? Well, it's because the Corinthians were notorious for their immorality. And he is telling these professing Christians that if they think they can continue in their sexual immorality and still enter God's kingdom, they had better think again. That lifestyle does not fit with the Christian faith. How many Christians, professing Christians, let me put it that way, how many professing Christians do you know who have had an affair or have been promiscuous or are involved in some of the other sins mentioned in this same text greed drunkenness slander swindling I know of a Christian lawyer who was asked to take on the business affairs of a professing Christian businessman professing uh, and become you know the lawyer for the firm and do the legal things that, that need to be done. Well, after several transactions, this lawyer told the businessman, I'm sorry, but I cannot represent you anymore. The guy says, well, why not? And his answer was, because you are dishonest in your dealings, 
and I can't be party to intentional unchristian conduct. And the businessman answered, what's Christianity got to do with it? This is business. You see what he has done? He, he, he had made a wall of separation between his faith and his behavior as though the two were not related. Why bring Christianity into accounting books and business practices? Well, hello, read the Proverbs and you'll find out the Bible has a lot to say about doing business as a believer in a world of unbelievers. And it talks about cheating with wrong weights, cooking the books, we would say, those kind of things that were going on and how God hates those kind of dealings, treating one person with partiality and then treating somebody else, oppressing the poor that don't have much money to be oppressed in the first place, and widows who don't have much money and income, and on and on it goes. It has a lot to say with how you do business. Well, the Christian lawyer understood that. The Christian professing Christian businessman did not. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 do not be deceived. That's what he's telling us here. Don't be deceived. He goes on. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Wow. And in context, Paul was talking about those who were giving a hearing to the false teachers who were denying the resurrection. But the principle holds true on all other matters as well. What's the principle? If you hang with the wrong crowd, they will corrupt you. You will not influence them for the better. And a lot of Christians have defended their worldly friends and associates. And they say, well, we just have a good time together. We enjoy one another's company. But these same Christians cannot stand to be with the people of God. They're alleged brothers and sisters in Christ. Partying on the weekends with their buddies, with their unbelieving family, yes. But in the house of God on Sunday, no way. Well, you know, that's self-deception. Well, you know, I'm a strong enough Christian, I can handle this. Really? No, you won't. They will pull you into their world. You will not pull them into your world. The entire book of James refutes this notion, saying that a faith without the appropriate works or actions complementary to faith is dead faith and no real faith at all. James 2 in verse 20. But many are self-deceived. So thinking straight about these matters is important. And I'm offering, therefore, as the premise of this study, this principle, what you think is reflected in what you are. It will come out in your behavior. It's the modern spin on James' statement. Faith by itself is not 
accompanied, if, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. James 2, verse 17 and following. Now James is not suggesting that he has a way of showing his faith, which might be different from the way you show your faith. No. His point is that all of us show our true faith by what we do. There are no exceptions. You and I are what we think. Proverbs 23, 7 warns us not to uh, eat the bread of a stingy man. And the reason is given. For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. He is always thinking about the cost. That's an interesting scenario that Solomon gives. And what he is saying here is that the stingy man, what he says of that man is true of any man with regard to his or her belief system. What you and I think in our hearts will be reflected in our behavior. Often there is a discrepancy between what we say we believe and what we do. The stingy man in Solomon's scenario says, Oh, come eat, <laughs> come and drink, stay for dinner. Yet because he is really stingy in his heart, he is obsessed with, how much is he going to eat? <laughs> uh, what's this going to cost me to feed this guy? Is he going to eat me out of house and home? The point I want you to see is that regardless of your words, your real beliefs are reflected in what you do. And so the premise is you do as you truly think. We all do. We all do. What we're doing is not so important as what we're saying. Now we need to say, that I'm not negating the fact that we need to give forth the gospel, but you better have some <clears throat> actions to back that up and support that otherwise people are going to see right through that and that H word is going to come up again hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite you're not living what you say so that brings us second point here that our goal is to think God's thoughts I know you've heard that expression all the Puritans talk about that thinking God's thoughts after him. Say, well, that is a strange, that is just a strange statement in itself. How do we think God's thoughts? Well, it is that as Christians, we need to have our belief system in tune with the Bible. And I'm not talking about being able to parrot back the party line. By belief, I mean what the Bible means, that we really do trust the words of the Scripture to be the truth, and by the aid of the Holy Spirit of God, dispensing grace in our lives by the redemption 
in Christ, we endeavor to live by those scriptures. We're grieved at the thought that they are, that we are careless about our behavior and that at times our sin is not just a slip and a fall, but is sometimes on purpose when we know better. And in that grief, praise the Lord, we do know what to do with our sin and we do do it. That is to say, we go to God in prayer and we confess to God our sin and we seek his forgiveness on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly what the scriptures tell us that we are to do. And this is how every true Christian functions. So the inconsistencies that the world sometimes sees in us are just that. They are inconsistencies. But the major, the major direction and tenor of our lives is to please God because we really do believe in God's holiness and in the grace poured out upon us in his son. We really do believe in a heaven to be won and a hell to be shunned. We really do believe that there is an accounting coming wherein every man, woman, and child will stand before Christ to give an account of his or her deeds done in the body. First, Second Corinthians 5 verse 10. We really do believe those saints. But even more than all of that combined, there is a real love for the Savior which compels us to strive to live by His standard for the praise of His name, for the extension of His kingdom. Just three verses down from talking about us appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul tells us that it isn't fear of judgment which causes him to live right. Here's what he says. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced, that's real conviction, we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and following. Now the true Christian does not serve God because he's afraid of the coming judgment. He or she serves God because he is loved by Christ who died for him. And in that had the, uh, the, the old worldly point of view crucified in Christ. We call it the old man in scripture or the old nature. That's gone and the new has come. We are a new creation in Christ. Thinking now about life through Jesus' eyes and loving and praising God for the reconciliation that God himself has effected in us. And I would say this, that love is a far better motivation for service than fear. 
fathers and mothers need to know that too. When you're raising your kids, you can be a fearful father and you'll get compliance. But if you're a loving father, you'll get willing compliance. Wow. And love is better because it is a better barometer of true faith than theological correctness. Let me say that again. Love is a far better motivation for service than fear. And it is better because uh, it is it is a better barometer of true faith than theological correctness. This is why, brethren, we sometimes see a zeal for Christ and a heart for service for Him in people whose theology is somewhat skewed. But one thing we can say of them: they love Christ. They may not have all the dots on the I's correct or all the T's crossed accurately because they may be here in their theological understanding and training, not up here. But you can't take away from them the fact that they love Jesus Christ as Savior. And having said that, the best combination, of course, is to know your Bible, to believe its truth, to practice its principles along with loving Jesus. Think of it as this way, being your head being right, your heart being right, your hands being right. Head, heart, hands. It is never ad- adequate to be content to be stupid about the Bible's teachings or misinformed so long as you can say you love Jesus. Well, I love Jesus. Yeah, but do you know him? Do you study him? Do you know his word? Well, you know, I, I love Jesus. And I'm sure you've run into people like that. They're not much into studying anything in the Bible. They just love Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus taught this. Whoever has my commands... And obeys them. He is the one who loves me. John 14 verse 21. And you cannot obey what you do not know. So for the games to cease. And for a real impact to be made. In the behavior of the Christian community. Our thinking must become biblical once again. Now, Jesus anticipated this in his teaching about fruit trees. Here's what he said. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. And he was talking to the Pharisees. How can you who are evil. That's what you are. How can you say anything that's good. For out of the overflow of the heart. And he's talking about the mind. The affections. The will. Out of the overflow of what you are inside there. Like that tree. 
inside the core, what you are in your heart, out of that overflow, the mouth speaks. He goes on, the good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in him, and the evil man brings out evil things out of the evil that's stored up in him. Matthew 12, verse 33 through 35. Well, this is that principle that we're looking at this morning. What you think will determine how you act. You are what you think. And of course, there is none good but God, Luke 18, verse 19, but among men there is none good, not even one, Romans 3, verse 12. So if anyone has a good heart, it is because God has made him so by his grace. That's the good news of the gospel. We start out with bad hearts and bad natures and evil thoughts and wicked speech and all that goes with, a, with an evil thinking, and God changes us. That's that new creation that we alluded to earlier. And then from that point on, we're able for the first time in our life to really think some good thoughts and say some good and wonderful things. Let me ask this. Have you ever, um, have you ever seen a tree, a tree, that looks really good on the outside? I mean, the bark is all intact, and... And um, you look at the branches and they're, they're, they look really strong. And you look at the leaves and they're, they're bright green and kind of shiny and so forth. And then we get one of these wild thunderstorms that we sometimes have in Michigan. And kabam! This tree is knocked down in your neighbor's yard or your yard. And what you discover is that in its core, it's all rotten inside. I'm sure you have all seen something like that. And I look at that and I, I, I apply it to my fruit trees that I have in my backyard. And I say something like, if that had been my fruit tree, there is no way that that tree could have produced good apples. But more importantly, if that were a tree in my yard, all the spraying of that tree, all the pruning of that tree, all the fertilizing in the world could not have made the core good again. Bad trees are destined to bear bad fruit. They cannot change of themselves and you can't change them either. But God can make a bad person good. That's the gospel. God can remove a rotten, sin-infected, depraved human nature and replace it with one that is born of God, indwelled by His Spirit, with love to serve God and produce good fruit. The Bible speaks of this in many ways. We've already looked at one. You're a new creation in Christ. The old is past, the new is come. Ephesians 5, 8 and following. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteous fruit, truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. So the description is from darkness to light. 
And he says, and look, the fruit's different in the person of light. Or Galatians 5. You, my brothers, verse 13 and following, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. So you have a description of slavery to freedom. It's another way of saying radical change has taken place. Or how about Philippians 1, verse 27? Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So, Here's a description of going from ignorant fear to informed courage. Change has taken place. So all of these passages are describing the same work of God, but using different figures of speech. When God comes into a person's life, he changes them pure and simple. The transformation is so radical, so opposite the norm, that friends and neighbors sometimes cannot believe that it's you. And they certainly don't understand you from that point on. They just know "Mm, you're different. They probably don't like the difference because you have stopped doing some things with them and going some places with them that you used to do, and they say, what's wrong with you, you know? Get with it. We're going to have fun this weekend. Say, I can't do those things anymore. Why not? Oh, leave him alone. He's got religion, and that's what we hear. Well, this is the change that the gospel brings. Now, Having documented this change and the reality that our thinking is reflected in our actions, I want us to observe here as well that there is a work for us to do in getting our thinking right with God. None of what I've been saying so far, it comes to us automatically. Oh, I believe in Jesus, boom, he's at me with all of this, you know, everything's going to be just copacetic from this point on. No. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, which was enslaved in all kinds of sinful conduct. He said, No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Ah, but we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11 and following. What is he saying? Well, Paul is telling them, that they have a way out of their sin because now that they are in Christ, they are indwelled by God's Spirit who enables them to understand the thoughts of God. How we think will govern our speech, 
And while it is true of the general public, who has known the mind of the Lord, and we could say of the general public, none, none, yet for the believer indwelled by the Spirit of God, he says, we have the mind of Christ. We do have the mind of Christ. Now I look at this as the potential to know how God thinks about things. It's part of our new creation in Christ. I can tell you that I think a whole lot differently about life than when I was controlled by my sinful human nature within. As a sinner unsaved, I wanted what everyone else in the world wants. Money. Give me money. Popularity. Prestige. A life of leisure. But since coming to know Christ and having his spirit within, I now have a desire, I now have a desire to think about life as God would. To see the world through his eyes. And how does God see our world? Well, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Luke 9 Verse 23 through 25. That's one way that God looks at the world. God sees our world as something tangible, temporary, passing away. God sees our world as something which jeopardizes a man's soul. God sees the world as a poor prize indeed compared to the value of saving one's life. Christ is worth self-denial. Jesus is worth crucifying our loss, picking up our cross, following him. This is how God sees our world. So if we have the mind of Christ, the potential to know God, and to see the world through his eyes is ours. But how? How does this become a reality? The psalmist said in Psalm 111 and verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good or right understanding. Again, that's Psalm 111 verse 10. Our starting point must be the word of God. So let me ask, are you truly convinced that God's word is more trustworthy in making right decisions than your own thinking? Would you trust the Bible over the latest pop psychology? Is the Bible more reliable than the latest scientific journal? Won't the science theory in that journal change when a flaw is found in it? Yeah, constant revisions in science. Because they're constantly discovering. Okay, so we want them to change their theories. 
But God, who knows all things, never changes his mind. He doesn't have to. He's never surprised by new facts that he didn't know. Is the Bible true because God said it or because man can verify its claims? Do you put the Bible to the test the same way you have doubts about the government figures on the latest economic trends? See, we've been taught, question, think, trust your own instincts, think your own thoughts, so on and so, so forth. That's the way we're taught to live in our world. We're not to trust in some exterior source of information. But when we're talking about the Bible, this is basic. It's the foundation of our belief system. And if the Bible is fallible on any given point, who's to say that the Bible is right about how you and I are saved from the wrath to come? Why would the Bible's teaching on salvation be any more accurate than its teaching on creation? That's what you have to wrestle with. So people want to pick and choose. I like that part of the Bible. I don't like that part. I think that's true. I don't think that's true. Bottom line is that our faith starts with the word of God. Do we believe that God has spoken and that those who follow his precepts, I'm reading scripture, have right understanding? If we're not here in our faith, we will be enslaved to the mind games of the world and cast upon the sea of doubt which shipwrecked many a person's faith in God. Can I trust God? Needs to be followed by, will I trust him? Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is why Paul could say, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Faith pleases God. And faith begins with believing what God has spoken. Straight thinking for a crooked world. Lord, bless the truth of, our, of your word today. There are many voices out there, multiple voices. Only one God, though, and only one word from God. Many religions, yes, but only one word from God. Only one true faith, Paul writes. If we're in that faith, we must believe what you have spoken. And by belief, I mean we must begin to act upon what you have spoken and not take the word for granted and not dismiss it as we might the opinions of Dear Abby or some other columnists 
who writes on the various subjects of life. You are not giving us good opinion in your book, but you are giving, thus says the word of the living God. Help us to bank on that and to trust that. Not our thoughts, but your thoughts. As we read in our text today, your thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than our thoughts. They're more involved than our thoughts. They're more inclusive. They're more conclusive. There is not a thought that you have that has a dark spot of ignorance or untruth in it. Help us to see that. That's our God who has spoken about life. Forgive us our hypocrisy. Forgive us those times when the world has convinced us that our opinions are just as valid as anything God has to say. Help us to be students of the book so that we know what God has said. And if there's any here today that's outside of Jesus and his saving grace, may you grant to them that faith that they don't have and that repentance that they cannot yield, that today you might draw them into your kingdom for your glory and their good. We ask. Amen.